there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to October. Hope you had a great September and that this new month will be even better. I know some of you are in the midst of midterms already. Just remember, while your grades are important, they're not going to determine your future success in life. The most important thing is that you're really learning and studying to take this in. Take in all that new information, not just to get a good grade. This is the time in your life to be exploring and experimenting with different subjects and classes and trying to figure out what you're good at and what you enjoy. Now, before I introduce my next guest, who definitely enjoyed his life right after graduation, I want to make sure you've all signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter that we drop on Mondays. But in order to get it, you need to go to the Time for Coffee website. That's time, the number four, coffee. Org and sign up for the Java Junkies newsletter so that you can get a heads up on the five new episodes we're dropping every day that week. Now grab a mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated drink because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is David Nicholson, Senior Director of the Environment, Energy and Climate Change technical team at Mercy Corps, a global humanitarian and development organization. David found his professional passion by first following his heart to Spain, where a short-lived romantic relationship led him to slinging drinks in a local bar and eventually helped to lead him to a full-time career in international development. Just a quick note, I am actually clearing out the backlog of some of my earlier episodes. And when we recorded this back in the spring of 2018, I didn't actually introduce my guests live to tape. Big mistake, but hey, live and learn, right? I know you're going to enjoy hearing about David Nicholson's career path and what he does in his current job as Senior Director of the Environment, Energy and Climate Change Team at Mercy Corps. First of all, let me explain what a technical support unit does. So Mercy Corps is the vast majority of our work happens in the 42, 43 countries within which we're implementing programs. There's close to 5,000 staff mostly nationals of the countries we're working in, implementing projects every day at a, um, across a wide variety of sectors. The global organization, their headquarters function is relatively small. We're talking about three, 400 people in total. Um, and within that, we have a, a, what we call a technical support unit, which is a group of sector specialists that specialize in particular areas of work. The role of that team is to advise our colleagues in the field on how to design interventions in that particular area. So we have youth specialists who know how to engage adolescents and work with young people. We have economic development specialists that understand how to develop programs that help raise income or improve other economic measures. My team within that covers our environment, which we broadly define, but we're largely talking about natural resource management. You know, how do we consider, you know, water systems? How do we consider forest resources and the impact that these things have on people's day to day lives? We talk about climate change. We're interested in making sure that the programs that we implement are at least consider the risks from climate change so that we're not you know, charting a development path that will be vulnerable to climate change in the future or right now. And we're focused on clean energy. Like how do we harness this 
this huge new industry to create jobs and help get people access to energy. So that's just a bit of a flavor of what my team does. In addition to helping design programs, we sort of support our teams as they're implementing. We try and get out there in the world and capture best practices and share those around to other countries. So it's a pretty varied role. For me specifically, now I'm in a leadership position. It's The day-to-day is a little difficult because it varies so much. But on a typical day, I will spend some time checking in with, I have a team of across the two teams I look after, I have a team of sort of six or seven folks. Each of those guys is busy supporting different country programs, responding to requests for support. So I'll usually spend some time checking in individually as a group to figure out, okay, what kinds of requests are coming in? What do we have the capacity to respond to? And just help those guys make choices on, okay, we can, we're able to respond to this request or let's help find a different solution to this country. So some of it is almost like sort of traffic policing. I was just thinking that. To some degree and trying to make sense of all of the requests coming at us. Usually when I'm on the better days and I actually get to engage in some of the technical work myself. So there may be a couple of projects that I'm particularly engaged in or I've been supporting. So I might, as as a specific example, I recently have been working quite a lot with our Uganda team where there's a big refugee crisis from South Sudan refugees in northern Uganda currently. And our team there has been really interested in how do we bring energy solutions to these refugees in such a way that helps people develop their own businesses. And it's quite a technical question. So we've been engaging a lot of energy companies that look at and can sort of assess the opportunity of solar business models to apply to this kind of population. So I've been engaging in a lot of uh, these companies to sort of understand, okay, what what are the priorities? What are the incentives for you guys? How could we use our donor money to bring you in? So I get to do some of that. In, that's sort of the most interesting part. There'll be a lot of coordination among different teams within Mercy Corps headquarters that I then get involved in. Um, being here based in DC, we work a lot with our policy and advocacy team. So it's not atypical for our policy team to come pop in my office and say, we're engaging with a senator from a certain state that's actually interested in climate change or wants to know something about this problem in a particular country. Can you help you know, with some talking points? Or you know, there might be a meeting of technical specialists from our key donors like USAID that are coming together and you know we want to be able to influence that group in some way so mm-hmm. we'll pull together a group of experts across Mercy Corps to figure out a strategy for that so I think that does that give you a flavor it does absolutely you know we got into this a little bit in the espresso shots yes but what do you think is the part of your job that and I'm sure it's going to be the technical side that you really can, you need to study for and prepare Mm -hmm. in school. In fact, you probably would do well to dig into a particular major. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that fair or, I mean, certainly let's, let's go into the entry level. You know, you're, you're an intern. And then if you wanted to segue, are you looking for interns with a particular major that they've Uh, that they're either working on in college or or would have had if they graduated? You know, not necessarily. I I think sometimes calling ourselves technical teams is a little bit of a misnomer because the reality is we are, I think every, the vast majority of successful technical advisors within a group like Mercy Corps are first and foremost generalists. We have to be able to have a really broad perspective on what's happening in the world and how, because, you know, we're I'm so surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, I think it's really important, actually. And I certainly consider myself a generalist, first and foremost, because we do all the work to be successful has to be integrated. You have to be able to see the big picture. And only if you understand the big picture of what's going on in a particular context, can you start honing in on the sort of the specific details of of one sector. And I think that ability to see the world from a broad perspective, first and foremost, is really important. So 
to answer the specific question, I think for young people looking to come in, we would certainly look for majors that focus on international issues of some some form or another. And then, you know, having an interest in a particular area is very helpful. Maybe there's some extracurricular work looking at interested in clean energy or, you know, maybe some advocacy around climate change or have done, you know, had some, um, some familiarity with that topic. But I do think the generalist view of development is is really key. What's fascinating is when we're hiring at slightly higher levels for technical advisors, we often get really, really deep technical specialists that come in and very rarely do we end up hiring them. Um, okay. Yeah, for example, our energy access team, they're not engineers. If you were going to a deep technical specialist, I'd have to have a solar engineer and a wind engineer and a water engineer. And, you know, we, we go out and work. We bring in that expertise when we need it, but we need to be pretty broad based in our view of the world. So who, what, what was the background of the person that you ended up hiring for that role? For the energy access position? Yeah. yeah so my most recent hire in that team had very broad based, um, had a undergrad degree actually in a liberal arts degree. I forget the, exactly what, but then she did have a master's degree that focused on water engineering among other things, but it, she didn't come out as a qualified engineer for sure. Um, but the, the most attractive part was she'd had a, a wide range of experience in working in different countries on different kinds of challenges, always sort of edging towards the energy and environment components of those challenges, but had worked across sort of things looking at food security and livelihoods and conflict management. So that broad base is really, really helpful. So when you graduated from the University of Southampton, yes. it says you've got a, a degree in the Department of Management. Correct. What, what does that mean? So I did an undergrad degree in business management. And the reason I did that is because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And originally, I applied for schools to do politics and economics because I had a general interest in those issues. But then I thought that might be a little, wouldn't be a practical skill set necessarily. And in the UK, we specialize a little earlier than I think in the US in terms of the, the subject matter for, for university degrees. So I chose business management. It just, it just felt like a, a skill set that could be applied across a wide range of professions. And I think that held true. And so you graduated. Yes. Obviously. I did. And how did you make a decision on like where to go for that first job? It's always easy to look back and see a path of some kind, but there certainly wasn't an intentional one. No, initially I graduated and I just wanted to go and explore the world. And I had a real, real pull to leave the UK and go and see the world. And I didn't really care at the time what sort of professional path that put me on. That wasn't the highest on my agenda. The first thing I did was just left and I actually moved to Spain for a year, partly because I fell in love with a Spanish girl in college and that it seemed happens. like a smart thing it to do. Happens. So, And I've had a, went on a path with lots of different jobs, but I spent six months in Mallorca. I was a nightclub promoter for a while and then I worked in a bar restaurant. It was just, I just enjoyed myself and sort of got, you know. with And, and improved your stuff. Spanish. Improved my Spanish. And that was a, that was something that I made a deliberate um, decision to. I said, if I'm going to have some sort of international career, then a second language is going to be really important. So having a, having a girlfriend or a boyfriend that speaks another language is the best way to learn that. I thought that was a smart decision on my part. My French was excellent when I was in high yeah, school. There you yes. go. Yeah. Um, so then I ended up living in Barcelona for best part of a year. Did a range of different jobs. I was doing some translating. I did some English teaching. I got a job with this little firm in Barcelona that was that sent English teachers out to corporations and so I would go to I worked with Wrigley's the chewing gum folks and I'd go there and I'd meet with different departments and you know do these conversational English classes and stuff like that and I didn't really know what I was doing but you know there's pro forma classes you could find on the internet and I just you know right. yeah so I was I did that for a year 
and uh, then decided that I needed to go to something else. I felt like Spain or staying in Europe no longer was satisfying this thirst of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a decision that I wanted to go to South America because I felt like that was an interesting part of the world. It was a time when South America was in the news a lot um, for sort of political reasons and economic crash, and there's mm-hmm. just lots of interesting things happening. But um, energy, environment, climate change were not Not on high on my street. agenda. I had okay. a general sense that sort of environmental issues were interesting and important to me and I've always been a nature lover and you know part of the reason I wanted to go to South America was I'd seen these incredible photos of these mountains and forests and just found it fascinating so I went back to the UK and decided to take whatever jobs I could find for three months to save up enough money to go so I worked in a refrigerated warehouse for for four months Mm -hmm. and I worked in a bar at night so I was working sort of 14 hours a day or something to because I really was dedicated to do this. So I did that for four months, saved up what I had an arbitrary goal in mind, and then signed up to a program that provided um, sort of a safe landing in Argentina that you could go live with a family, you could do a month of Spanish schooling to improve, and I'd, I'd been told by enough people that the Spanish in Argentina was different and I should probably take some lessons when I get there. And then we'd set you up with a volunteer experience of some kind. So I signed up with this program and I had a pretty vague idea of what sort of volunteering experience I wanted, um, which in the end... <laughs> another story. Another story. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I ended up going to Argentina and I was there for seven months and did some volunteering, taught, um, did some soccer coaching, worked at a startup company that was building a dance school for a, for a little while that was sort of interesting. I had a general interest in sort of business startups at the time yeah, and I sort yeah. of found that interesting and particularly businesses that had kind of interesting social impact potential. So I sort of explored myself and, yeah. and that and basically just had a great time and, and my Spanish got really good. And and so how did how did your current career path come into the picture? Right. So at that, at that point, after being in Argentina for seven, eight months, that's when I started to really hone in on, okay, international development aid seemed interesting to me. I realized at that point that I really needed to go to graduate school to do that. You did. Um, okay. Because I wanted, it was, I had started to meet people and hearing their backgrounds and was getting a sense that, okay, I do need a graduate degree and I just want to learn about this because my undergrad didn't gave me good space skills but didn't teach me around this and I wanted to learn so but to do that I also again I needed I wanted some more work experience before going to grad school of a real job because up until that point I've been kind of you know bouncing around doing different things but so I went back home and was flat broke so decided well I need a job that enables me to earn money and sort of develop some professional skills before applying to grad school and I ended up responding to these adverts that you might see in London that's you know you can earn good money and in recruitment and headhunting so I joined a headhunting was firm. Was this like in the newspaper? Yeah, or? it was in the, yeah, I think, it, you know, I think it was in the newspaper. It makes me sound, sound old, doesn't I've it? No, no, but I've often wondered about like yeah. who, who's responding. Clearly some, you know, yeah. there are lots of people who do. I think it was in the newspaper. Okay. And, it's, and I, I, and I seem to recall I had friends who had gone down this path as well and they were making good money and were having fun in London. And so Was this I, Morgan Hunt? This was Morgan Hunt. Yeah. So I joined a company that did recruiting and headhunting services for NGOs and government. I think it was deliberate at the time. I felt I would be able to learn, you know, by working in partnership with these kinds of organizations. I would very learn. clever. I think so. And that, yeah. might, I might be, that might be revisionist history, um, whether or not that's true. But I think it was because um, it certainly wasn't the highest paid of mm-hmm. the different headhunting firms. But I remember meeting with some of the finance ones and it just didn't seem to suit my mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did two and a half years at Morgan Hunt. I learned a ton being in a, what honestly was a very high pressure work environment, target driven, very high expectations. And I, I sort of learned the value of efficient work. 
I learned the value of targets and I got to manage teams quite young because I was, turns out I was quite successful. I was given a team to run. So I was a 24 year old managing a team of three or four people. I, and I really developed a lot of great skills from that. And it so it feels random in where I've ended up, but I, I credit that with a lot of the skills that I think I bring to my job now. So what was it that started to appeal to you about the NGO sector as you listened to these different interviews, the candidates that you were interviewing? Yeah, I mean, there was. it seemed to bring together the kinds of people that I wanted to be around, I guess. You know, this idea that you can mix your passions and your career together. And it made me realize that it was much more professional than I probably would have expected from the outside. You know, growing up and thinking about, in, in the UK, we talk about it as a charity sector, and I probably would have thought as a bunch of sort of do-gooders volunteering their time. But recognizing that these organizations are highly professional, you can actually earn a, a reasonable salary. It's, you know, it's not the highest paid in the world, but you can earn a good salary, you can do meaningful work, and the work is much more complicated than probably I would have imagined. And I also got to work a lot with government and learn how those systems work. And this was a time when London was regenerating a lot and they had all these interesting public-private partnerships for regeneration of different neighborhoods. And I got to kind of learn a lot about how that works. And I use a lot of that actually still. It, what it, it, not very, the, the system that was set up in the UK to re regenerate London, some neighborhoods in London, is not dissimilar to how the World Bank functions in places that we work, mm. which is, um, yeah, which is kind of an interesting... Microcosm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that was, it. it was fascinating from that sort of exposure. And, and I got to meet thousands and thousands of people with all kinds of different jobs while either as candidates or, you know, I was also a salesperson. So I would be selling to the recruitment department of organizations that they that I was their best option for finding best candidates. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I got to learn all kinds of um, skills. So I get it was while you were at Morgan Hunt that you said, um, I need to go to grad school. Yeah. And I think I already, even joining, I think I had that idea. I, I certainly didn't think I was going to be in this profession for a long time. And that helped me because I knew it was terminal because it, it was pretty stressful. But I was like, okay, I'm here for a summer period of time. And as I was there, I was looking into different grad school options and trying to figure out which direction to go starting to really hone in on, all right, I want a practical international development degree. Previously, I thought I would go down the road of a international relations policy type degree, mm -hmm. but I sort of realized that no, I'm more of a doer. I'm hands-on. I want to spend time in the field. In the field. I want to, you know, I want to see the world and this seems like a ticket for that. Yeah. So I honed in on that and, and a mixture of personal and, and sort of professional ambitions led me to apply to grad schools in the US. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, was from New York. We had met in Argentina. She was living in London and was thinking about grad school also and was looking at the US, so it sort of made sense to... So you picked Brandeis. Correct. And you got your master's in sustainable international development. I always find it so interesting that they put the word sustainable there. Yes, yes. I think that's true, and especially, I mean, it should be a given, right? But it should be. Yeah. You hope that it's going to last. Sadly, it yeah. wasn't necessarily a given when we started using that, but yes. But that was, um, you went to the Heller School for Social Policy and Management Correct. with a concentration in environment and climate change. Yes. Good program? Great program for the reasons that I, I chose it among others because it had a very practical bent. What was very impressive about the Heller School, and I believe remains today, is that they deliberately bring in large numbers of students from around the world that aren't necessarily from elite communities. They get a lot of people that get World Bank scholarships. And at the time, Ford Foundation gave a lot of scholarships. So they, it was this deliberate experience of trying to bring together lots of backgrounds and then had a very practical focus on how do you actually design and implement projects. The whole first year was 
focused on that. And then the other reason I went was the second year was all go out to the field, find yourself a job or an internship or something, go do something practical. And the thesis was a case study on the work that you're doing. And that just really appealed to me because I wanted that practical experience because I realized I didn't have a lot of that coming into this. And the theory and the, um, the more conceptual side of it was less difficult for me. So that was when you went to Columbia. Correct. Yeah. And that was a wonderful opportunity that really came from developing a close relationship with one of the professors who I really respected, who had been working in Columbia for 30 years. And when this scramble happened in, you know, the spring semester for everyone to go find somewhere to, you know, people are just randomly emailing organizations all, all over the world. I had built up this relationship and she occasionally picked students to go and work on the project that is sort of her her darling and it was a big world bank marine protected area in Colombia, looking at different livelihood options and climate change adaptation so it really fit well with my interests and I was very lucky that I managed to build this relationship and was given that opportunity because I think it was a huge learning experience for me and it was just super fun as well. You know something that has come up across a variety of interviews I've done so far has been the importance of mentors. Yes. How deliberate have you been over the course of your career in choosing mentors? I think I've been pretty intentional and mentors or at least sort of building relationships with people that can open doors for you. And certainly when I was in grad school, I recognized quite early that there was one, this one professor, Marion Howard, who I felt like I could learn the most from and was interesting to speak to. And I did deliberately foster that relationship. And I, not necessarily because I was thinking, oh, well, she'll send me as an intern to, because I wasn't thinking that far ahead at the time, but she just seemed fascinating and somebody that was, I gravitated towards her because I felt like there was a, a, a lot I could learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been other occasions when I've done that as well. Um, when I first came down to DC, when I graduated from, from Brandeis, I had the opportunity to meet a guy named Tony Barkley, who was the who was the retiring CEO of DAI, and I met him through a, a good Defense friend. Defense Alternatives. I'm sorry, Develop, Development sorry. Alternatives International. Correct. So one of the large consulting firms that does USAID contracts. They call them the Beltway Bandits here in DC. Very impressive organization. And he'd been the CEO. He was one of the founders of the organization. He'd been the CEO for twenty odd years. I had a personal connection through a good friend of ours who's dad was good friends with him and so we met and I really you know again seemed like somebody I could really really learn from and so much of this is luck it happened to be that he was spinning off a new project as part of his retirement that was under the DAI umbrella that was looking at climate change and energy networking practitioners together it was an early effort at some of these communities of practice that we see and really just needed people to sort of competent people to come help him out that were cheap so was that your first job yeah. out of so out Brandeis? of once once I came out of Colombia I had that opportunity and um and threw myself into that and it I took a risk because it was a lower it would have appeared like a lower level position than my ego would have demanded coming out of grad school it was a glorified internship I was being paid but I think I was being paid twelve dollars an hour or something like that I think um, your title if I'm looking at the right thing here, was it project manager? Well, I evolved into project manager. Okay, so you started as consultant. I started as, yeah, glorified intern. And there was he had a team of three of us. There was another project manager who wasn't sort of doing what Tony wanted. And I just worked my butt off for a few months and showed value. And just the concept made sense to me. And I developed a relationship with Tony and... I was I got moved pretty quickly to the project manager position. I do want to say that it wasn't my first job out of grad school for Brandeis because when I finished Brandeis, I spent the summer in Boston as a pedicab driver. 
which I think is a really. I didn't see that. It's on not the, on, on the, the CV. It's not on the CV, but it was one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. So what was it about that? That oh, it's so fun. I mean, after being in Colombia and working you know, really hard and writing this paper, and came back and one wasn't quite sure where the next job was. I felt Boston probably wasn't going to be the place where I found the job I wanted because most of the international work in Boston is health related, not all, but that's the majority. So as I was thinking about other things to do, I felt like I was probably going to gravitate to DC, but I just wanted to enjoy the summer, be outside, a cyclist, the money, you know, if you work hard, you can make good money. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. On days that went really well, you could, yeah, it's like working in a bar, you know, if it's tip based and you can, you can do well. It was just so fun, you know, taking tourists around Boston, making up history. <laughs> I, I'm sure they were, they were intrigued by their, their British guy. Having, having a British accent really helped. Um, yeah, the tea party went over real big. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, riding around Boston Common and uh, telling people about how the Redcoats won there was very... <laughs> I learned at that point that Americans, their history is not always as as, as, as good as it should be. So you mentioned the the Beltway Bandits yes. that you worked for, and I'm using that deliberately because there are going to be opportunities that come up at these organizations that they aren't mission-driven, but they are impact-driven. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you've clearly gravitated to an NGO now. Can you talk about your the, the difference between the experiences in terms of the work and the approach? Sure. And whatnot? Sure. And I and you know, sometimes we use the term Beltway Bandit and it sounds kind of negative, but I have a generally positive view of, of those organizations. And I enjoyed my time. So as within DAI, I on top of being the project manager for Tony, I ended up very deliberately going to build relationships with the people that ran the energy and climate technical teams within the main headquarter function of DAI and started doing some work for them as well. Is that here in DC? Yes, that was here in DC. So I was got to see different parts of DAI and they are mission driven to some degree and certainly they're impact driven. People are really committed to the outcomes. It's not, you know, I think some people have the impression that these consulting firms are all profit driven and that was not my experience. The folks at DAI were really, really wanted to execute good projects. I think the main difference between that and a, an organization like Mercy Corps is the space for creativity. Within DAI and Chemonics and these other organizations, they're sort of executing contracts that are pretty predetermined set of actions. And, you know, their interest is doing those, executing those actions as efficiently as they can to make sure they make it a little money and also doing it in such a way that leads to impact. But then once they've done that, they'll move on. Whereas I think with a group like Mercy Corps, we're thinking much at a much longer term nature of what our role is and how do we, and we can be creative because we can go looking for the challenges, finding opportunities to do interesting things, and then we'll see if we can get it funded. Um, so I think there's a different mindset, mm-hmm. whereas the and Mercy Corps really, and I'm sure this is true of other NGOs, allows you to first of all look at what are we trying to achieve? What are creative that solutions? That goes outside of a project. Outside a of a project, yeah. yeah, exactly. What's the longer term vision yeah. for the country? Exactly. And what interesting ideas are out there. And then it's, okay, let's see if we can find a donor to partner with to help achieve that goal. So we sort of create the vision ourselves, whereas the consulting firms are really more responding to something that's already been laid out. And I should say that when we say that we, we're really looking to our national staff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to our local partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And rather than being, you know, from wherever it is, London, D.C., Geneva, telling them what they need, listening. Absolutely. I mean, when, yes, we at Mercy Corps is, as I said, we're over 5,000 people and only a few hundred are not 
national staff. So yes, the we is very much you know the the, the national teams. I'm a support function to those folks who are who are you know designing the programs. And in your experience with DAI, how much are they partnering with local communities on the projects that they're working on? They do because there's an expectation to do that as part of the contract, but it's a little bit more transactional. I think there's a necessity to have the community engagement as part of the project cycle, but it is not as it's not a long-term commitment and it's not the same sort of dialogue. DAI already has a when it runs a when it's executing a project or it has a pretty clear idea of what needs to happen because the donors already mandated it, right? And that doesn't mean those ideas haven't originally come from the community, but when DAI comes in, they're sort of pretty clear on what they have to do. So they build the relationships with communities, but it's a slightly different kind of relationship than than the likes of Mercy Corps develop over a longer period of time. So you then went to work in Uganda. Yes. And I thought this was super interesting. You went to work for the Ugandan government. It's actually not it's, the government. It's not the no, government. No, they okay. had a government sounding name. Oh, it's it, not the it government. really yeah. did. Okay, so tell us about the Uganda Carbon Bureau. Yeah, Uganda Carbon Bureau. So I had become very interested throughout my graduate studies and my time in Colombia in carbon finance. This idea that we could develop clean energy projects that would have a sustainable revenue source by sort of accrediting the greenhouse gas emission reductions and bringing that revenue back into the program. And it, it sort of combined my interests nicely. And I've always had a sort of a I gravitate towards finance, financing models quite a lot. So I was really interested in that and I wanted to know how that worked in practice. So we, I was looking for countries and we, my wife and I were both doing this at the same time, trying to figure out right, where, where is, where's the interesting work happening that we can go and learn and experience. Because I realized that having done the work at the AI, I, didn't, I, needed, I wanted more field experience. I wanted to get my hands dirty again. Sitting in this office in DC doing this work was interesting, but it wasn't. It wasn't satisfying after a year and a half or so. So I actually found an organization. We honed in on East Africa. We wanted to go to Africa to, to have that experience. East Africa is English speaking. And I did some research and found this organization that was doing Uganda Carbon Bureau that was a startup company that had also an NGO attached to it that was really doing these small scale clean energy programs and trying to figure out how to how to connect those to this global uh, carbon finance mechanism that was kind of you know around at the time. And... I cold called, cold called them, got in touch. I was just going to ask you how you got it. it as a, a British guy named Bill Farmer who set this up and he'd been living in Uganda for 30 years. He actually used to run the Department of Conservation in the government of Uganda. Quirky character, fascinating guy. And I cold called, got in touch with him, said I would love to come and work and learn from you. And he basically said, we don't hire people in other countries to fly here. We don't have the resources for that. But if you show up, we can talk. So again, we decided to take the risk. It felt like a really good investment in our future to get out there and and make things happen for yourself. And that was that was what I did. And we flew you out. Bought there. A, you bought your plane ticket. Bought a ticket. One way. Bought a, bought a one way ticket. Had a couple of friends working in Uganda, so had a safe landing and felt okay. Let's go. And I had some other I had network and found some other organizations that I thought would be interesting, and just decided to take the risk. It's. Not an expensive place to be. It's like if we have to support ourselves for a few months, we can probably afford it. Because I'd been applying for jobs from DC that came, you know, program manager jobs in the field. So competitive, people that had so much more experience than me. Because you're expensive in that regard. Because when you get those jobs, you come with housing and all these expectations that, you know, at that stage in my career, I wasn't going to be qualified to do that. So we just showed up. 
and I met with Bill. Such a fascinating character, was really a leading thinker in this area. And he gave me a couple of months trial at a, again, like not a lot of money, but it didn't matter to me because it was, you know, we're in Uganda. Wanted the life experience. But it was enough to it was enough. Kind of yeah, it was pay like, for your room and board kind I, of thing. Yeah, I think I was earning eight hundred dollars a month or something. I, we were paying rent five hundred bucks a month between myself and my wife. It was plenty. And uh, not plenty, it was sufficient. And yeah, and it ended up being fascinating. And um, again, sort of advanced in that role and got to do some really interesting things, really got to learn the ins and outs of this subsector that I was really interested in. And I think being at the cutting edge of what was sort of interesting financing models tied with working with social enterprises and startup businesses in what's a pretty innovative sector, I think all of those things together is what made me appealing to Mercy Corps when I applied to a job with Mercy Corps. So just kind of unpacking a little bit more how you found Mm -hmm. the Uganda Carbon Bureau. Mm -hmm. Like, where did you... I remember... I remember... I remember spending some time Googling, like, carbon credit projects in East Africa. Um, honestly, and finding the big broker firms that buy these carbon credits and then sort of tracing, you know, they list their project. You know, a lot of this is public information. They list their projects on their websites that are accredited and, you know, basically investigating, going down to, okay, who's the, who's the initiator of this project and finding who that is. So I remember doing that and I'm sure that led me to them. But I also spoke to people who were in that world, you know, I'd met at different times and through this network that I'd worked on with DAI there were people that worked in that sector so I reached out and just got advice from people like okay what kinds of organizations do this like how do I you know how do I find them so it was really a an effort at um a bit of a a an investigation into figuring out who are these people and I found a handful that seemed interested and cold called all of them after you graduated from Brandeis would you say that you had your eyes on the prize like have you known where you wanted to go like where you want to be? No, I don't think I've, I've known that at any, any point. I think I've mostly been pretty true to following my instinct on what's interesting. I was sure that I wanted an international career that was working on big global issues that I cared about. That Of that, I was sure, but recognizing that that could take many forms and not really having a clear idea of what that would look like. So every step I've taken has just been a case of evaluating this is now interesting to me and it feels like there's value to learn from this experience. And then that's led me to the next one. And I certainly wouldn't have had any idea when I joined, when I finished Brandeis that I would end up working for a group like Mercy Corps. In fact, I often thought I wouldn't work for one of the big NGOs. My impression at the time from the outside was that they didn't do the kind of work that I'd be interested in. I didn't think it would be as rigorous or as sort of sophisticated. If you were going to ask me to guess at the time, I would be pretty sure I'd have been working for the World Bank. That would have been my goal. When I finished in Uganda working for Carbon Finance, we came back to DC with the full intention of working for the World Bank and had been networking and speaking with people and had some interviews lined up. And that was what I, the direction I thought I would go. And what happened? I interviewed for a few World Bank jobs, quickly recognized that it wasn't quite for me. The things I was interviewing for demanded a much greater degree of technical expertise in finance modeling. And also I was like, this is not just the environment just didn't seem to suit me. There were, you know, I was interviewing for jobs that would be sort of sitting behind a spreadsheet developing business models. And that as interesting as that is conceptually for me, I'm like, I don't want to do that every day. I happened to have a close friend who I'd got to know in Uganda who worked for Mercy Corps and she 
listened to my musings on development over nights together and occasional rants and observations in general. And she kept on saying to me, you know, I think you would really like Mercy Claw. I had made a judgment of the kinds of work that Mercy Claw would do. And I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a, a faith-based organization. And that, that came with a bunch of assumptions that I made that were incorrect about what that meant. And she ended up talking me into it. And then it so happened when I was in DC, there was a access to energy technical advisor role that came up and I was introduced to the previous director of the team that I now run. And my friend said, just go, just go meet him. Just go meet him, see how it goes. So I did. And we met for a beer. I think we had four. We were there for three hours. We solved all the world's problems together. And I realized this is a, this is, this is where I, this is the kind of place I belong. This is an exciting, these people are creative. They're smart. They're thoughtful. They're questioning all the time. Just felt, it felt like a much more suitable direction. I mean, you obviously have a great personality. You're a very outgoing guy. Are there any tips that you could offer to kids who are still discovering themselves and, and whatnot and may find it intimidating sure. to network? But that is a thread that has, that has followed you or that, and that you've been pulling mm -hmm. your whole life, David. Yes. How do you do it? It's, that's a really important question. And I've got much better at it. I wasn't, it's not, I mean, certainly I am extroverted to some degree, and, but I've really had to learn, I've sort of forced myself into situations where you kind of have to, you know? And I think a lot of the life experiences that I've, I've had and sort of positions you put yourself in help you sort of hone that skill. I absolutely think it's a skill that can be practiced. It is harder for some than others, I absolutely agree. So I do often meet people who say things like, oh, I don't network. I don't like to network. And I think we call it this networking. We make it sound sort of a little bit intimidating. And it's, I think it's really a case of being interested in people and what they're doing. And my experience is that people respond well when you're interested in them. So it's not a, it's not a difficult thing to meet somebody and learn about them. People are usually pretty willing to discuss that. And also, I think this is true of the, the industry that I work in and maybe true of others, that most people got their start doing that sort of thing too. So people are pretty tolerant of that and generally are pretty, pretty supportive. So I do think that's important, but also I think it's helpful to recognize not to waste people's time. I realized early on that if you're asking questions of people, you don't have to speak very much. So if you if you have some questions ready that you want to ask people that you meet in a, you know, in an event or if you're whatever exposure you have to different people, if you're willing to engage and ask a few questions, that will get a conversation started pretty quickly and it sort of takes the pressure off you. So I've practiced that a little. Like give give me a sense of what you what you do. So I try and avoid and I don't always do this successfully, but tr I try and avoid the generic boring questions of whatever, you know, that people tend to ask, you know, and go into something interesting straight away. I, and I, I still do this now. So if I'm at an event and I have somebody from USAID or somewhere that I want to network with, I'll ask them something about what country, like where in the field have they worked in the past? Or before you had this job, what were you doing? Or something, just something that gets a conversation started that's a little bit more human and personal, you know, and, and gets people talking about themselves and, and their passions mm -hmm. um, rather than, the more generic sort of, oh, what's, what's, what's your title? Like, how long have you been here? Like, that stuff is not that interesting and won't, it won't engage people. And then do you find, obviously you get their card. Yes. And do you try to set up something to meet them again right away? Or 
Do you wait? I tend to, I would advise, I mean, if you've, if you've found a, if you've found a connection to somebody either in person or being, you know, through a, through a, a mutual contact, there is no harm in reaching out and trying to set something up. And I have people do this with me quite regularly. Sometimes I'll miss it first time. I actually, when people follow up two or three times, I kind of admire that persistence. Having been someone who benefited from more senior people helping me in that way, I really try and respond. And it's not annoying to follow up several times. So I think it's worth being persistent to some degree. I also think it's really important to not make it a one-off. If you find somebody who is genuinely in a position or an organization that you're really interested in, even if there's not immediate opportunities, find excuses every so often to follow up and check in with them maybe every six months. Oh, I saw this article, thought you'd be interested. Or um, I'm going to this event, is anyone from your organization gonna be there? Just, you know, I think that you can be really structured about that while coming across as casual. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.